Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Welcome to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My name is Clayton Craddock, and this is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. This is part two of my conversation with Damian Bassman. We're going to get right into the conversation right now. Tell me about If Then. Yeah, I mean, it was, that show was, I think that show also got like, was like a a victim of its excellence in a way. Like, I mean, it was, it was Tom and Brian and Michael who had just done, you know, um, if had just done next to normal was their last show, a gigantic hit. It was the first time that Adina and Anthony had been together since rent. Um, you know, it just, it had, it had so many, you know, it had LaChance, which was like her first big show since color purple. It had Jen Colella had Jerry Dixon. I mean, it was oh, wow. an embarrassment of riches in this show, you know? Um, and, uh, and Starabin was orchestrating again. So it was, it was, I think the expectations were so gigantic that there's no way it could have lived, you know, how do you live up to next to normal and rent? Like with the addition of Jerry Dixon and Lachance and Jen Colella, you know, it's just crazy. such a different experience because it was the first time I had done a show with Tom where I hadn't been in the room. So the first time I got to see the show, we were like, was rehearsals for the, when rehearsals started in out of town in DC. And I was like, what's happening? It was so weird to be playing songs that I didn't know when they were already happening. And I didn't know the story and I was trying to play catch up. Um, But you know, the music was great because it was Tom Kitt and the lyrics were super brilliant and funny because they were Brian Yorkie. So the piece was great. I think that, I think they, the trouble with that show was just that they didn't figure out exactly how to tell the story. And also like, you know, not all audiences are that smart. <laughs> I mean, you really had to pay attention. You couldn't, you really couldn't passively consume that show. You had to pay attention the whole time. And, and not everybody wants to, think when they go to a musical, you know, I think people go to a play with a different expectation than a musical sometimes. And, uh, so I think it suffered from, uh, bloated expectations and, but I think it was a great piece and the music is great. And anytime I get to play a song from there, I'm always like, Oh my gosh, this is such a great song. You know, like, so, you know, it did, it did well. And, you know, I, I, I love what Adina did, but Adina can be polarizing. People, some people don't like her voice. Some people do, you know, and it is what it is. So, but I loved that experience. I thought it was great. And I also got to meet some great people like, uh, Tamika Lawrence, who then I, you know, formed a band with and played with her for a while. And she's a freaking force of nature. And, um, first time I got to work with Pearl Sun and a whole bunch of great people that I met on that show. But that's the fun thing, you know, about doing shows is all the people you meet and then get to work with afterwards. So. 
Speaking of great people, tell me about the Kristen Chenoweth show. I'm a little speechless when it comes to Kristen. I just think that she is like, like a timeless classic talent that would have been, you know, Barbara Streisand if she was born then. Like she, she just, she can sing, she can legitimately, people say that about everybody, but she can legitimately sing anything. She is the only person I've ever met that is nicer than her public persona and more talented than her public persona. Like behind the scenes, she's even more Kristen than she is in front of the scenes. Like she's an amazing boss. She's so much fun to work with. She's an incredible musician and she's just really exciting. And uh, my, in terms of like kind of living your dream, like playing with her is as close to like being successful, I guess in quotes as, as I have with anything that I've done. Like when I was in Pittsburgh and I was studying with Tim, um, uh, Tony Bennett came through and they were playing with the orchestra and he brought, you know, his own trio with him. He brought piano, bass and drums like you've done, you know, like plenty of times. Um, and, uh, and so like Clay and Cameron was playing drums and, you know, after, you know, Tim was, I, I heard about it and I was like, oh my gosh, Clayton's playing with you guys this week. And he goes, yeah, you want to come to rehearsal? And I was like, of course. And so, you know, Tim is awesome. He like brought me to rehearsal and I got to sit and watch Clayton warm up and do the, do the rehearsal with the orchestra. And then, and he goes, you want to get lunch with him? And I was like, you can't just talk to someone like Clayton Cameron, you know, like, you know, you know what, how it is when you're on the side, you don't think about that. Right. And like, you can't just do that. And he's, he's like, he's just a musician like anyone else. He's in a town where he probably doesn't know anybody. He probably doesn't have anything to do. And so I was like with him and we walked up and he's like, this is my student Damien. And I get to meet him. And he's like, he's like, do you want to have lunch? And he was like, sure. So we like went and had lunch and then we're having lunch. And then he's like telling us about this new book he's working on. This is before his brushes book came out. And he's like, he's like, do you want to check it out? He's like, I'd love to see what you guys think about some of the notation I'm using. And like, we went back to his hotel room and like, he showed us the stuff on like one of those, you know, those Ed Thigpen brush pads. And he like was, had like, you know, like the handwritten stuff on the pictures and he was flipping the pages. And I was like, just sitting there like, you know, just like a little kid, like watching a movie of themselves being like, this is, this is the life, man. You play with this person and you go and you play with orchestras and you're in different towns every day. And I was like, this is my dream. And that's what I get to do with Kristen. Like on Friday night, we're flying to Utah and we're playing with the Utah symphony and we have rehearsal in the morning with Orsha and then we have the concert in the evening and then I'll fly back on Sunday. But those gigs with Kristen are everything. Cause it's like, you know, I'm not playing in orchestras anymore. I'm not a timpanist, but I still get to play with orchestras all the time and I get to do it from my place of confidence and comfort. And, you know, when you're a timpanist, you're, you're driving the orchestra, you're the drummer of the orchestra, but when you're actually the drummer in the orchestra, you're really the drummer in the orchestra. And so like, you know, we play with the freaking Chicago symphony and the Philadelphia orchestra. And like, and I'm in the front playing this amazing, this amazing rep with the best singer in the world and getting to play with these orchestras that I always dreamt of playing with. And for me, it's the absolute, I get so emotional talking about it, but like every single time I pinch myself and say, how lucky I am because it's so great. <laughs> and you get to, you get, I'm using my, my, my technique and my chops to play cleanly and 
with dynamics, but I'm also thinking like a drummer and I'm, I'm driving a full orchestra and a string section. And every time without fail, you know, our, our amazing pr uh, production manager, Matt, you know, he sets things up in the morning. So I get there for the orchestra rehearsal and, and the string players are coming in and I'm sitting, you know, I'm sitting in between in front of slash in between, depending upon the size of the orchestra, the cellos and the violas. And so immediately you just get all these looks and people putting in earplugs while they stare at you and all this, you know what I mean? You know, the usual thing. And then by the first orchestra break, everyone's taking the earplugs out and everyone's smiling and everyone's coming over and being like, you're such a dynamic drummer. You know, it's so great. We're really listening to you, you know, all this stuff. And it's just, it's fun like I don't resent having to prove myself over and over again. I think it's fun because I love to to fuck the stereotype, but like that gig with Chris and is is the best thing I get to do because we get to it's it's either playing with an orchestra, which is for me those gigs are my favorite. And a very close second is when we travel with the five-piece band, which is Mary Mitchell, and then Brian Ham on bass, Eric Davis on guitar, and Justin Smith on violin. Brian Ham yeah, I haven't you know, seen so, him since Rent. I think we sub Rent together years ago. Great yeah. player, man. Great player and great guys. And like, mm -hmm. it's just like it's the dream, you know. Like, you're just going around, and the music making is at just the highest level. And you just you can't not be at your highest game because it's Kristen, and she sounds perfect every time, you know. And and like, and and she's so loose. You would never believe. You would never know it, but like, she's so loose in terms of like. She'll just be like, I don't want to sing that tonight. Let's just do this. And some, some places she's like, what about this song? A song we've never done. And we'll just throw it together. Sound check, you know, and, and, you know, if she's in the mood to sing or if, if her voice is bothering, well, you would never know when her voice is bothering her by listening, but if her voice is bothering her for her, you know, she'll pick all different songs to sing than what we normally do. And you just got to be ready to do it. And everyone's in it together and you're always listening. And she never does anything the same way twice. So like, every breath, every pullback, you have to be listening and present. And there's nothing more fun than that challenge of like, having, you know, I mean, you know it because you do the same thing of having to listen and be present. And so that of all my gigs I do is far and away my favorite. I'm just so fortunate to, to get to play with her. So well, yeah. one of my favorite gigs I've done over the past five or six years was subbing for you at SpongeBob SquarePants. My God, that show was so much fun. Greetings, Squidward. Not only was the show fun, it looked great for the audience because, you know, one thing a lot of drummers on Broadway don't do, or musicians in general, they never see their shows. Why? Because they don't want to know what's going on outside of the audience. They're like, I'm playing all this stuff and I can't hear it. And you go, oh man, I don't want to do this anymore. But <laughs> fortunately for us, we can hear everything that we do because we're the drummers. <laughs> but man, that show was so much fun and was so much fun subbing for you and of course, me having to go back to my technique in junior high and learn how to play traditional again. 
flatten the drum out, man. You could have flattened the drum out. No way. I wasn't going to know. That thing was like 90 degree angle. I was not. <laughs> Tell me how you got involved in that show. Oh, man. That was another show that I, I, I got real lucky with. Um, so I pretty much worked on every show Tom had ever done. Um, the other one he had done was uh, the cheerleading show, Bring It On. Um, but I got to do the pre-production workshops for that. I just didn't do it because that was a tour and not a um, Broadway show, and, and, and I didn't want to do a tour. So I'd worked on everything Tom had ever done, and then he was brought in excuse me, after the show had already been worked up and stuff, Tom was brought in to SpongeBob to orchestrate it. And he told me he was working on the show and I was so jealous. Cause like, I mean, you know, Tom, Tom and I met when we were kids and we're really close friends and, um, and I feel really fortunate for that personal and professional relationship. Um, but then when he like, I didn't get to work on that show, I was like heartbroken <laughs> because mm. I was like, Oh no. And I didn't have a gig at the time. So also financially, but, um, it just sounded like fun. And there was this guy that was working on the show that was a Foley artist. And so he was doing kind of what I had done on my shows, which was like, he was playing drums and he was also doing all the other stuff. And Tom said like, you know, they had done a few workshops and stuff. And he said down the line, it's, it's very likely that I'm going to want to split that book up because, you know, the Foley artist can't really play all the drum grooves all the time if he's doing the Foley. And, and he's like, would you be interested? And I was like, of course, I'll be interested in, in doing anything you're doing. And uh, so it, it eventually got to that point where it was slated for Broadway. And then Tom said, listen, we need to break this book up. So I'm coming into this new situation where I'm going to have to work with a percussionist. And Tom had said, you know, like, you know, think of, of some percussion stuff he could do for tunes when he's not playing drums, when he's not playing fully stuff, he's like, you know, cause I want to utilize him. I don't want him just to be there for the fully stuff. And I was like, okay, but well, I don't know what this guy can do. You know, like I, I, I didn't know. Um, we met in like the very first rehearsal, it was just like instant chemistry. And Mike Dobson is such an amazing percussionist. And he was so brilliant at that, at all the Foley stuff he did. I mean, you know, you got to play with him. His pocket is fantastic. Like he's so much, he, cause he thinks like a drummer. So when he's playing percussion, he's putting it where you would put it, you know? And like, anyway, uh, so Tom brought me in and my first, this was like, if then my first time getting to do anything with it, um, was at the first rehearsal in Chicago. Um, and it was a really weird situation where the drums, because the Foley artist had to be on stage because he had to see the action because he had to catch everything live. Um, so he was where maybe the drums might have gone, um, but he was up on, visible on stage and the pit was whatever size the pit was. And so I was in like a second sub basement in a room by myself in Chicago <laughs> um, and I had never seen the show. I had never heard the music. And so like we had like these, you know, headphones and we're talking to each other, me and Mike Dobson. And then the great music director, uh, Julie was, was McBride was music directing and Marco Piguet was playing keys. And so the four of us were, uh, just talking. And so like, we would be, I'd be out to start the first song and I'd be like, all right, Mike. So, um, what's the feel on this tune, <laughs> you know? And then he would tell me and, and Marco would play a little bit of the groove on piano with it muted in the house. And then we'd like start the first tune. Um, and Tom, you know, had written out drum charts, but it was, you know, it was a situation where he's like, I wrote out kind of like the parts that were on 
the demos that were given. He basically transcribed the demos that he got, which were mostly programmed drums. And he's like, you know, so when you hear it, you'll know what to do with it kind of a thing. But I didn't get to hear it till we were like in rehearsals on stage, like in tech rehearsals. It was really crazy. Um, so it was, it was a different kind of challenge. And, you know, Mike Dobson like taught me through the vibes and then like, he'd be like, this is what I did, but you might want to do some blah, blah, blah. Um, and then like in between, I would like run out of my sub basement up one level to where Tom was like orchestrating. And I'd be like, can you play me the demo for this section? And then he'd play it. And then I run back that, you know, so it was really fun, but it was a, it was, it's itself a, a different way of putting the show together. But, um, you know, I had, had Tom and I had the demos and I had Dobson to, to guide me and, and Dobson was, was just so great, you know, because all the Foley stuff he did was so, so cool. <laughs> and that music was so much fun. Oh my God. And almost, almost every song was so much fun to play and, yep. uh, good times. Yeah, man, you killed that show. Everybody loved when I'd be like, they'd be like, you're out. Who's coming in? And I, I'd be like, oh, awesome. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I mean, they like they liked everybody. That sh- I shouldn't say it like that, but you know, everyone obviously loved playing with you. So, well, um, I appreciate the opportunity, and you know, it was it was it was a. I I still just think back to those songs and that era, and, and thank you for having yeah. me. But oh man, I'm sorry. man, I loved your playing. I, I saw you play Memphis, and I was I remember playing with you at Color Purple, and that was like like so so great. But then getting to just sit back and watch you play at Memphis and just listen. That's why I said like. I feel like you're, you you got this bounce that is just so <laughs> joyful, and I was like, oh! I remember when I asked you, I was like, I was like, don't play it too much better than me because I want them to still want me to come back. <laughs> I remember you saying that too. That's funny. No, I can't, I can't play that show better than you. But the show that you were doing that you were doing uh, recently, and and you're going back to uh, Jagged Little Pill. Yeah, this is cool. This was a unique situation because even though SpongeBob was a bunch of pop tunes, it wasn't, they weren't new tunes. I mean, they were new tunes. So like you weren't, you didn't have to reference anything in terms of what you were creating. Um, But this was obviously, I mean, dang, this record, you know, like this record was, it loomed huge for me. I was in, I was in college when I, when I heard this record and then grad school and depending upon where I was in a relationship, like each different song was my favorite song at the time, you know? And it was just like so huge in, in the zeitgeist. Um, when Tom told me like a year before the first workshop, he's like, he's like, I have a meeting with Alanis Morissette about ad- adapting. So this good friend of his had the idea and then like approached Alanis people. And eventually she agreed to take a meeting and took a meeting with him and it worked out. So then like Tom was going to get to meet her. And I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, it was kind of the thrill we had when we started working on American idiot, which, which I also worked on. And I ended up not doing because the out of town conflicted with uh, next to normal and my wedding. So I wasn't able to do that show, but I had, I had done those drum parts and, and everything. And that was really exciting getting to meet that band. But then like, so this was like getting to meet Alanis. Tom was getting to meet her. I wasn't getting to meet her. And, uh, and he's like, you know, he's like, we'll probably do a workshop and maybe like, like if it goes well, like next year or something, would you want to do it? And I was like, 
that's the most ridiculous question you've ever asked me. <laughs> like, of course. Um, so then when it was like finally going to happen, I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta study this record. And it was really interesting because if you listen to it now, you know, I mean, the story of that record is that a lot of it, a lot of the demos made it onto the record. And so, so, you know, she and Glenn Ballard had like programmed drums and like recorded live guitars and vocals over like bass and drum loops and things. And, you know, Flea ended up coming in and playing some of the bass and different people, but, um, they, uh, they, a lot of the stuff is loops. And then they had, um, Gun Ballard had done a session with this guy, Matt Log or Loff. I'm not sure how his name's pronounced, but so like the live drums is this guy that just got lucky and got to do the session when he was like in his twenties, got called in to do a session for this unknown Canadian artist, you know? And, uh, so when I went to listen to the album, I was like, okay, it was like, this is a good opportunity to sort of do my little thing, which is like, that idea of like combining the percussionist and the drummer at the same time, only instead of a percussionist, I'm combining like loops and drums at the same time. And Tom had asked me if like, you know, should I program the loops? And I was like, no, I don't want any, I want everything to be live. I want to, I want to recreate the loops. And then, and then once I figure out how to recreate the loop, play the drum part on top of it. So that was sort of my thinking as a starting point was like, figure out how to recreate the loop. That sounds a little more organic and, and earth, earthbound and grounded. And then, put, put like a, a nice, simple, clean rock drum part on top of that. Um, so that was my starting point. So I knew I had to have my jam band. <laughs> I knew I had to have my drums. Um, and, uh, and once again, Tom just let me do my thing. And, and if there was something that he wanted specifically, I mean, it was, it was usually more along the lines of like, you know, can you not go to the symbol yet? Or, you know, can you wait to, to, to drop the, the, backbeat in until this part, you know, cause he was, you know, cause he's also thinking about the story they're trying to tell, which is, you know, different than just the song on her record. Um, so, uh, it was absolutely thrilling, um, getting to try to, to give, to honor those, the original record. And then the other thing that I did was I, I went and watched as many videos as I could of the way she did the tunes live, which was then different. Cause you know, the way that like Taylor Hawkins played them, was different than the record, which is different, really different than the way that Gary Novak played them. And then, you know, Matt Chamberlain also did some of her stuff. You know, she's had the most amazing drummers. And so I just sort of like watched the way everyone approached them and thought about the record and then thought about like, how is this context different? Like what is, what are Brooke, the book writer, what are Brooke and Tom trying to tell in the story here and what make what's too much, what gets in the way of the, of the storytelling, what supports it in the right way. And how can I maybe even, in this context, like kick it up a notch from where the record was. Cause that's the thing about the record is like, they're great, but because a lot of them are loops, they kind of all stay here. And so in this show, you want it to have some sort of an arc, you know? Um, so that was, that was my approach was, was how can I, how can I put the loops and a drum part together, infuse it with some of how she does it live and then tell the story that we're telling. Um, so it was really awesome. And then there's like the one, iconic drum fill and you ought to know that I have, that I, that I, that Tom wouldn't let me play on the record <laughs> that I, but that I play live in the, in the show. <laughs> Tom wanted this like bump, 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 bump instead of the clack, 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 detecadum. Tom wanted this pump, you know, and Tom is always the boss. So I, I did that for the record. But then in the show, I was like, if I don't play this dude, I'll have every drummer in the world saying what's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and he let me play in the show, thankfully. So um, it's really fun. <laughs> So for those people 
who want to become musicians in the Broadway pit, especially drummers that are listening to this and watching this. Um, what What's some advice that you would like to uh, give them? Like, like, what's the most important thing that someone should know about being a successful drummer on a Broadway show? I mean, I, I think what served me the most was that I genuinely listened to all different types of music, not different shows, but different types of music. Because I think, I think that you can, you can make a mistake. I don't want to say a mistake, but it's like, you're just skimming the surface. If like, you're going to play a show that has Latin influence, let's say, and you just learn the Latin drum parts to that show. Like, you know, like what Andres does in, in the Heights is not, he's not playing a show. He knows how to play all those types of music. And then he put those feels and those ideas into the square box that is Broadway, you know, but, but he didn't like learn to play Latin Broadway parts, you know? And, and so, you know, like for me, Rent is a great show steeped in 80s pop, but it's not 80s rock. It's still a Broadway show that is in influenced by the rock genre, but it's not rock. Like if you want to learn to play Rent, listen to 80s rock that would have influenced the composer and then go play those drum parts with, the, with that in the back of your mind and that in your pelvis and that in your chest when you play those parts. Um, so, and I think that's incredibly true for anything that's jazz based, especially like Broadway swing is not swing music. So if you can go back and play along with, you know, Count Basie and find that pocket. And then when you play an early Broadway swing, you understand where that type of swing is coming from, you know? So I think the biggest thing is don't study Broadway music, study music. And then when you're playing a show that is a specific genre, listen to music that influenced that genre and go back as far as you can. Like when I was in Absolute Ensemble, we got to play, you know, with Marcel Khalife, who is like the Bob Dylan of Lebanon. He's like a national icon, folk singer, musician, composer. And so I was like, okay, we're playing with, we're playing with Marcel Khalife. Let me get his records. And I listened to it and it had all this like, you know, Darbuka, flavor and the drum set and i was like well let me go back a step and then i like tried to listen to some like folk singers lebanese folk singers and then i was like hey let me and i went back into the earliest stuff i could find of that which is just like uh, like this female singer like field recordings of like a female singer and somebody playing a single rick you know recorded in like the mountains of lebanon in the 1915 or something like that so you understand where it comes from and then when you get up to today's point because they've also listened to rock music and all the stuff you grew up listening to. You understand where the, where the kernel came from. So I, for me, that's my biggest thing, I think. And I still do that now, you know, like I did for Jagged Little Pill. I didn't just like listen to the record and learn that record. I was like, let me find every live performance I can find. Let me figure out what these loops are doing. Let me think about the style of those, you know, like, and then you put it together and then you make your own choice in, but you're, it's a more informed choice, you know, so you're coming from somewhere. And when I need a refresher, I definitely don't listen to like my recording of the thing. I'm going to listen to like 
Gary Novak or Taylor Hawkins playing it live to remember where the like impetus came from that made a stadium full of people, people scream, you know, <laughs> that was a, one of the more important things that I got from uh, subbing at SpongeBob is that all of those songs had a different feel and they come from different genres. You had the gospel thing, you had the modern pop thing, you had Aerosmith. And if you know how to play those styles, it becomes easier to fit in when you're required to play, you know, uh, that open hi-hat on, uh, what's that song, the Aerosmith song? Uh, oh, I don't remember, but uh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, uh, the electric skates tune. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So it, it becomes, you, you, you come from a more authentic place. Yeah, totally, a, totally. A lot of people that either want to sub for me or, you know, have tried to sub, and then when I hear them play, I can instantly tell that, they're not really coming from the place of knowing the, the music. They, they have learned all the shows, but they don't really know where it comes from. And I think what you just said is very, very, very important. Um, a couple other things about being a, a Broadway musician or a musician that does Broadway shows. What are things that drummers should never do in a Broadway pit? This was, this was a hard, this, was, this lesson took me quite a while to learn. I'll be honest. It was something that I had trouble with. And I, and I had to have two close friends that are much more important than me. Like, I don't want to say sit me down, but kind of sit me down and tell me this, which is that nobody cares what you think. That's a really big one. <laughs> um, and part of it was because my first real Broadway show, Color Purple, I was hired specifically because like Don Bird wanted to know what I was thinking and what I wanted to play. And then my second show was next to normal, which I had like helped create. And so I thought that my opinion and ideas were welcome. And, you know, like if you're talking just like the bass player, it might be, but don't talk beyond <laughs> your peers because it's not, it's not, you're not, you're not there. You may, you know, I mean, we all know this as musicians, because musicians have a sense of, um, we have a sense of rhythm and timing and we can feel right away in a reading when a scene doesn't make sense because it, it's, it's not sitting in the flow correctly or, you know, the style of song or even just a single line just is like hit, making a hiccup in the flow of a scene. We can feel right away and we can, we can probably fix that. And stage crew, maybe even equally so, you know, stage crew can always tell like that song doesn't belong in the show. Like they always know, which is the dud. Um, but nobody cares what we think because we're not the creative team and it's really hard to learn. Like, I don't want to say like this, but it is a little bit of like, you have to learn your place and our place is, you know, do your, do your job and, and do a good job, um, doing that. I think that's one of the biggest things. And that's, that's a lesson that took me the longest to learn. I, 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 I was never saying anything bad, but I was expressing my opinions alongside of the creative team. And then I, had to be told like everybody loves your playing and everyone loves you, but you can't tell people what you think about stuff. And I was like, it was hard. I felt like, you know, I felt like I was five. I felt embarrassed and stupid and then I was going to get fired. And, but you know, it's just, it's just part of the, the scene. And that's, that's the truth. And I think that's important also like, you know, that's why we all have side projects like so that we have a place where your opinion is what matters. You know, that's why I have a band 
with Lauren Patton and we're, we have a gig in a couple of weeks and I have, we have a text chain this morning where we're all deciding, what are we going to play? No, I don't think so. This is why, what about this? So that you can have a place where your creative input is, is valued. Um, and I know that my musical creative input is valued on the shows that I get to work on, but beyond that, you, it's, it's a hard lesson, but you can't have an opinion. <laughs> you can have it. You just can't express it. I think that one. And the other thing is to just respect the MD, um, even if you don't agree with them to, you know, there to respect them and, and do what is asked. And if you don't want to, then take yourself out of the situation and go to another show or do something else. It's kind of a segue, but what are things that drummers should always do in a Broadway pit? Speaking of the MD. Follow the, follow the MD <laughs> always. Um, uh, be, be super, if you're subbing, just be, more prepared than you ever think you possibly can need to be. You should be, I mean, I remember my first show that I subbed on on Broadway was Aida. And it's still probably to this day, my favorite show I've ever played. Gary Seligson just wrote the coolest freaking book for that show and played the piss out of it. And, uh, and that pit was so awesome. Um, and, uh, but I remember playing my first show and the music director coming down afterwards and being like, can you just tell me how you prepared for this? Cause it just seemed like you knew the show. And I was like, just practice it every day for two weeks. Like I just, it just seemed like such an obvious answer, but it was like, you know, I had two weeks to learn the show. It was a situation where he, some of his subs got fired and I had watched the show like two years earlier. And he was like, do you still want to learn this book? And I was like, sure. And I, you know, and I had two weeks to learn it. So I just practiced every day and that's what I practiced. And I came in and learned it. So I was just like being hyper prepared is, you know, is a big thing. Um, and I think, this goes along with what I was saying about like when you asked about how do you not have it be a job, but like just always remember that like for at least one person, but probably several hundred, this is the first Broadway show they've ever seen. And so every show should be your first show. Like you should play it with as much care and attention to detail and, and mental presence as you do after you've done it a hundred times, if you're lucky to do it a hundred times. Um, I think that's really huge to just like, you, if you if you don't want to be there, don't take the don't take the gig, but but always show up like knowing it's someone's first show or it's someone's anniversary or somebody saved up for months to be able to afford to buy this ticket, and just play the show with the most respect you possibly can for the material because that's what it's really about. You're really just you're just a hired hand. You're just there to communicate the larger vision of the show, and you're you know my, Tim, my teacher again, Tim Adams. He's you know, he, he said something to me once about like, he said, you know, we're just hired help. He goes, when you play a gig, where do you enter? Through the kitchen door. It's like, it doesn't matter that you're up on the stage, but you enter through that kitchen door, you're hired help. He's like, even for me, he's like, I'm up here on stage, but I have to wear this. I have to wear this tuxedo because I'm hired help. And this is what the patrons that pay this, pay the bulk of our salaries want to see us wear is this tuxedo. So I'm hired help. No matter what you are, you're hired help. And I think that that just keeps me humble. You know, like I never ever, not that I would ever possibly think I'm great, but like, but that, I think that always helps anytime that I'm like, Oh, this gig is beneath me or uh, playing the show again or whatever. It's like somebody's first show. If there's five people in the crowd, man, they wanted to be there and you play that show for them. So it's like to treat every gig is, is to be thankful for it. And I felt this way before COVID, but even more now, it's like a real awareness of that sort of like just appreciation and gratefulness without being in any way like hokey or 
hashtaggy. Like it's, it's, it's a sincere sentiment. Like, like I really am someone that's always grateful every time I get to play. So what kind of drum gear do you use and why do you use it? And do you have any endorsements? That's, that's a cool question. Um, I, I pretty much mostly just play vintage drums. I just love the old warm resonant punchy sounds of old drums. So I mostly play vintage Gretsch drums in terms of bass drums and toms. They're all vintage Gretsch. Um, the kit that I use, I use those vintage drums for um, next to normal, but otherwise I always use um, this really great Ames, Ames kit, which I guess is technically vintage now since it's the eighties, but it doesn't, it's not, I'm talking like when I say vintage, like fifties, sixties, um, uh, this great Ames kit that sounds really warm. Um, and I like smaller drum sizes. I like to use smaller drums that have diecast hoops that I can tune down. So they have like this, a punch, but also a lot of resonance. So that way you don't have to hit them hard. And I'm sure that it comes from my, um, eight years practicing timpani every day, but it's just about getting the most tone that I can out of the drum without having to hit hard. I think a lot, I mean, you can, you can weigh in on this, but one of the most common comments I get every time a sub watches my book to learn is like, wow, you really don't hit very hard. Like you don't play very loudly, but it sounds like I am because I'm getting a big sound. So I'm all about, I'm a hundred percent about tone and sound. So I want my drums to sound good. Um, so I play vintage grass drums or these aims. My rider for all my gigs are, uh, Yamaha absolute custom maples, maple custom, maple custom, absolute. They're my absolute favorite non vintage drum. That's I feel what like I'm that- using it. Ain't too proud. My God, those are, <laughs> beautiful drums right no matter no matter where i am no matter what kid i get i can always make them sound good in five minutes with just a little tweaking of the heads they always sound good in five minutes i would love more than anything to have a yamaha endorsement um not because i want another set of drums but just so that whenever i go somewhere to make sure i get those drums um but i love those drums so much those are my favorite non-vintage drums and then my snares are all i'm a i'm a vintage snare geek and i just have way too many drums back like from like a, a 1920s leady you know to all different flavored brass chrome brass i mostly like slingerland and and ludwigs but i have a few gretchen leadys thrown in there um, so yeah that snare drum at spongebob was a noble and cooley right that was a noble and cooley yeah Beautiful. that was a that was my uh my high school graduation present that i got yeah I got that drum. That's a, that's a gorgeous, versatile drum. I use that a lot. And then I play, um, I had, I, I, I probably technically still do have a percussion endorsement through Toka. Um, I just haven't, I haven't wanted or needed any new percussion gear in so long, but, but I got all my stuff, uh, through Toka a lot of years ago. Um, when I was playing in Barry Manilow's band and I was his percussionist for a little while, um, I got that endorsement and I really, their stuff is great. I love it. Um, when I use congas in my setups, I use my toga congas always. Um, and then um, I had a Zildjian deal. I don't think I have that one anymore. For me, I just didn't keep that up because I found that I could never play just one cymbal brand. And that's just me. It's just my ear. But I just really love a whole different wash of colors. So like on my kit at Jagged, I've got Zildjian, Heisty, Sabian, and 
and then Istanbul. So I've got lots of different things. I just like different colors. So I mix and match until it sounds like the palette that I, that I want. That's great. I never yeah. even thought about using multiple uh, companies. Yeah. I just find like, you know, like for me, nobody does a, a ride better than Zildjian. Like all my old rides just sound so great. And even the newer K's and Constantinople's like sound great. But then for a splash, like Sabian and, and Istanbul splashes are so, they have so much character. So like I go with those for splashes and then I like, I like some really old, uh, some really old Zildjian hats that I have, but then crashes like, Heisty crashes are so cool and they have all these different lines and it's fun when I mix a Heisty with a Sabian crash, they have such different like overtone profiles that when you play them together, you actually, you know, sometimes when you play crash, crash, they just kind of wash, it becomes a wash. And I like to hear the entrance of each instrument. Like if I'm hitting this crash and then that crash is because I want another, you know, I'm making another comment. I don't just want wash, wash. So I like to be able to mix and match them so that they, so that you hear the each voice. What are some of the projects that you're working on at the moment? And do you have anything that you'd like to promote? Um, well, they're still a little shut down. I so have a lot of projects. Um, but the, the thing that I'm doing uh, right now, like the thing that's like my project is a uh, Lauren Patton band. Um, and that's with Eric Davis on guitar and Mark Schmid on bass and Lauren Patton singing. Lauren is the incredible singer and actress that does um, You Ought to Know, a Jagged Little Pill. And if you haven't seen that, she gets a literal standing ovation in the middle of Act Two every single night. I've never had ever experienced a standing ovation during a show before, but she gets one every single show. It's it's astonishing. <laughs> um, so she has a crazy voice and is an amazing actress. And um, so we're doing that, and we're playing. Oh, actually, I don't know if this will come out before then, but we're playing at Rockwood on July nineteenth and twentieth. Um, and if it doesn't come out before then you know, check your local listings. We'll be playing again sometime, but, um, that's a really, really great, really fun band. And, uh, um, what else, you know, I was doing a few workshops before COVID and hopefully they'll come back, but you know, you know, never to talk about a workshop because as my friend Randy Landau says, like, I'll believe that gig. I'll be, I, I don't believe a gig is happening until, until my first paycheck clears. <laughs> you know, one thing you we were talking about one, one, uh, uh, in the email you sent, you said, um, you asked what my favorite, maybe my favorite show to play was, but I have to have to say my, my favorite show that I would like to play that I've never got to play is Hedwig. When that show came back to Broadway, I was like, I want to play that show. How can I play that show? But you know, they came back with the band all intact, but man, I, I remember hearing that score and being like, it's like, it's like if T-Rex and David Bowie wrote a musical together. Like, it's so cool. So that's my favorite show I've never got to play. I'll say that. <laughs> what, what would be yours? What, what favorite show have you never got to play that you want to play? That's a good question. Yeah, I think I've played all the shows that, that I've wanted to play. You know, subbing at Rent, it was just like, you know, I mm -hmm. said to myself, it was like 2008, Right before it closed, I was like, man, if I can get my own show where I'm on stage playing like rock music and music that I love, mm -hmm. I'd be in heaven. Mm -hmm. And then about a year and a half later, I started on Memphis. I'm mm -hmm. like, this is the greatest thing ever. I yeah. can't believe I'm doing this for a living. I'm playing music that I love. And like what happened with you, you know, you got to create a lot of the parts, even though with David O'Brien, he was like, you know, just, just do bing, ka, ding, 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 you know, play it like Tico would do it. And I'm like, mm. 
again, knowing the fact that I know who Tico Torres was mm-hmm. and knowing Bon Jovi music, he just wants meat and potatoes. So I got to play a yeah. lot of meat and potatoes. And then I threw my own little thing in for me, you know, here and there with some of the other gospel or funk type of grooves. Yeah. But that was, that was by far my favorite show to play. But, mm. you know, I, talking to different people on this podcast and I was just talking to Bill Lanham who uh, did Evita and, playing this the song and the money kept rolling in that was so much fun to play because it was in seven and it reminded me of uh the the breakdown in tom sawyer (laughs) (laughs) so i used that reference i was like man if i can play that then i can play this but yeah you know it's funny that's a good question i don't know if there's one show that i haven't played that i'd like to play Mm. i have to think about that maybe i'll come see yours and man, I wish yeah, I oh man you would have so much fun playing that show i wish that i wish that i know phil collins got to write tarzan and the music was great but i wanted to i wanted to an early genesis musical because that is some cool mixed meter funky drum stuff you know it's a kind of an interesting question i always i used to come up with these ideas but i don't want to do it anymore because i'm coming up with all these ideas and one day it's going to be an actual thing you know <laughs> just joking about yeah man i wish there was a p-funk musical because you know, oh. i don't know what happened to the mothership connection and i think it was supposed to be but you know george clinton's legal things were always a nightmare but you know that would be a wonderful thing but i was you know what about a, a rush musical yeah, Moving pictures the musical, but I then I got to stop talking like that because one day, because we had, look, we have Tina, we have Jagged Little Pill, we have American Idiot, these all these bands from you know classic, you know rock or pop artists now have their own musicals. Sting, Blast Ship, was that? Sting, yeah, Sting, Blast. exactly. You know, and now I hear Brian Adams has something and Don McLean, and I'm like, <laughs> so anyway. I would, you know, I, I I couldn't play a Rush musical, but everybody's like, you know what, you know who you need to have on that Joe Bergamini. Oh yeah, because he was his his man. He was his yeah, drum tech. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I I wouldn't mind a a, a funk musical. That'd be, that'd be pretty sweet. <laughs> I'll step in for the Yes musical because now we're Bill, talking. Bill, Bill Bruford is my other. Bill Bruford and Stuart Copeland are my other gigantic influences and those guys i'll I'll step in for their musicals fragile (laughs) fragile the musical fragile the musical (laughs) close to the edge or synchronicity the musical synchronicity yeah that's more straight ahead but i can i can take that as long as we throw in some of their early stuff you know like uh uh next to you what's the 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 first song on the first album yes oh my god all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. you know it's funny that song and stuff from that era. I did uh, some recording with Anya Singleton, and this mm-hmm. song called uh, "Man, My Memory Is Terrible." Man, it's twelve fifteen p.m. and my my memory shot. I need some more caffeine. <laughs> but there's a song that I played on that that I kind of channeled Stuart Copeland because it was that kind of groove. But anyway, yeah. I digress. There's a lot of there's a lot of Stuart Copeland in my in my drum parts you know i hear i heard that uh uh taylor hawkins was a big Stuart copeland fan or is a big Stuart copeland fan and a lot of stuff that he played on a lot of the foo fighter stuff he said yeah i got that from Stuart copeland playing you know on the bell the cymbal and i was like nah i listen to it and i hear it yeah it's always interesting to hear people's influences that's why i'm glad i talked to you now i understand you much 
better than I used to. <laughs> <laughs> it's all so, about that, though. It's the fun. It's the fun, though. It's like you know when actors do roles, they do good ones. They do so much research, and they you know they ride in a cop car, or they go to the office, or they you know read papers and books that they care. You know, it's like musicians just like get the music and then learn the notes. But it's like there's so much more, and I feel like that's something that my classical training really did for me. Is I brought over the the respect for the material and the element of a thorough study. I bring to whatever genre of music I'm playing. And I think that just, I mean, it helps make it more interesting for me. And, and I think that it communicates more to people that are are listening. I feel like it does, you know, something, something does. I always like to find out what the origin origins of things are. Like for instance, you know, you think about somebody like Taylor Hawkins. It's like, well, who was he listening to? He was listening to somebody like Stuart Copeland. And it's like, who was Stuart Copeland lis- listening to? When you hear like people like Neil Peart mm-hmm. and and people he liked, uh, God damn, my memory, the drummer for the Who, Keith Moon. Yeah. And you know, then you see where he got his sound. Yeah. Then, Makes all sense. <laughs> and then who did Keith Moon and John Bonham like? They liked the jazz drummers. Yep. And then those drummers, who did they listen to? You can go back to Joe Jones and you can go back yeah. to Kenny Clark. Then you go back, you know, before Zooty's that. Like, you got Zudi back at the beginning. Yes. And then so, Dots. It's, it's so interesting. And I, I think a lot of people would be better off uh, doing some more homework and doing some more research because everything just didn't start yesterday. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there's so much more to learn. And just, just, you know, these conversations I I, I enjoy having because I get to learn more about people and I get to learn. I spoke to somebody else a couple of days ago about classical percussion and I didn't realize the timpanist is like the main person in the, I guess the drums, it's not the drum section, percussion section of the orchestra, correct? Well, there's the orchestra has... There's, there's a percussion, there's a percussion section and separate from that is the timpanist. And the, there's a, in the percussion section, you usually have a principal and then an assistant principal and then one or two section players, depending upon the size of the orchestra and what their budget is. And the assistant principal percussionist is also usually the assistant principal timpanist, but the principal timpanist is very frequently the second highest paid person in the orchestra after the concertmaster. Because the timpanist is the tonal and the rhythmic center of the orchestra. Where the timpanist puts the note in relationship to the conductor's baton is, is basically the pocket of that orchestra, if you think about it. And everyone, if it's an orchestra that listens, I mean, obviously the, the timpanist isn't ignoring everyone else. But like, it's about like, I mean, when I, when I was a timpanist, like, I would be thinking like, am I playing with the brass right now? I should breathe and think of the tension required with my lips to make a sound come out of a brass instrument. That's how I'm going to play and where I'm going to put that. Am I playing with the strings? Okay. That's about lifting and placing a bow and friction and weight. So I'm going to play it like that, you know, but then, but because our instrument speaks immediately where we put it, we have to wait or anticipate or place right in the middle of the pocket. And that is the beginning of the sound and the placement for the whole orchestra sound, right? And so the timpanist really determines so much of the character of the of, of an orchestra sa- signature sound, which is why when I heard Cloyd Duff play, I started buying every Cleveland Orchestra recording I could to understand like 
how how does he shape and move that orchestra as opposed to Saul Goodman in the New York Phil or as opposed to Hanger in Philly or you know and all these different orchestras and it was so so illuminating and that's still what I think of when I'm playing in with a pit band it's a little different because we have a click so then you're in relation to a click but when I'm playing with an orchestra with Kristen and I'm like I'm like okay I should I need to lean forward and bring the orchestra with me here okay I need to make sure that like my, my snare drum is a little bit later so that the string players relax in this part of the tune because Kristen is going to, I know Kristen's going to get soupy here and whatever. And, and like, I, I think that is like a million percent informed the drum set player I am is thinking like a timpanist because a timpanist's job is to be the tonal and rhythmic center of a full orchestra. And that's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> you know, I didn't do very much at all. I mean, I don't think, the last time I really played like in a an orchestra was in college and I was in the concert band and I didn't know what I was doing and I was trying to, you know, trying to keep up, but that wasn't my major in college. It was, you know, just a, a serious hobby and I just loved it. I loved being in the fine arts building because I was in the marching band. And mm-hmm. so I did that a little bit, but the, you know, being in New York, you're, you're going to run across situations where you're going to be playing with a bigger uh, group and being even in a band like ain't too proud there's a lot of people then playing with violins but when i did cats i, I sub for bill lanham at cats mm-hmm. now i didn't realize how different that was and the approach that dave roth had when it came to playing his uh, percussion setup and mm-hmm. even starting the show out and it was just a, it was a different feeling and different way of doing things like you said you know for most pits who are playing with a click or playing with a uh, music director that's going to set the tempo pretty rigidly mm-hmm. at cats you know they went with the downbeat like this and like another half second later that's where dave would start so i'd have to play along with him and i was like i had to feel where he was setting the the introduction to the entire show and then even certain other things where he'd play the timpani or play a uh uh uh, a triangle part and i had to play along with him i'd had to like feel it it was more elastic than things that i was working on so it was a different vibe Mm -hmm. so it's it's a whole other thing and and you know it's just interesting to learn it's really interesting because it, it helps your it helps your ensemble playing so much when you think like that and it also is really telling when you get a music director that has never done that like you get a music director that that hasn't had a lot of practice listening and breathing and reacting and has only done like cabarets and following singers right because because it's it's a real different thing and then you get someone you know, you're lucky. You get to play with Sheldon all the time. So it's like, you know, someone like him that's like listening and like music directing by where he puts things, not by where he shows things, you know, and it's a whole, it's a whole different experience, you know? Question for you. Where can people find you? And, uh, you know, do you give lessons in, uh, social media other than Facebook? <laughs> oh man. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm like Gene Hackman in the conversation, but I kind of keep off the grid to an extent. Um, I'm on Facebook and that's probably like the easiest way to find me. And one of the reasons I stay on Facebook to be perfectly honest is I, I do find that I get work through there because it's an easy place to find people. So it's just Damien Bassman, D-A-M-I-E-N-B-A-S-S-M-A-N. 
um, on my Facebook and you can find me there. And I, I don't do, I don't do very much, um, promoting of what I'm doing, but I do usually promote when my band plays. So I, I will always post like if I'm playing with, uh, like Lauren, um, or something like that, that's my project. And, um, but no, I'm not on, uh, Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat, TikTok. It's a, it's a fun, <laughs> yes, Snapchat. You can find me on Friendster. Um, <laughs> MySpace. <laughs> my MySpace page is still there somewhere. Um, wow. Yeah, no, I, I uh, and it's not anything against it. I just like, you know, I, I, I just, um, it's just one more thing that you have to look at all the time that, um, that takes, it takes me out of, of being present where I am. And I have enough um, pull from the phone with just texting and email that I, I don't for my, me personally, I just don't need too many other options, but, but Facebook is a great way to get in touch with me and find out what I'm doing and, uh, you know, email, whatever. But, um, yeah, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Damien Bassman, the amazing person. I love this chat and thank you for taking time out. And I'm looking forward to, uh, actually seeing, seeing you in person outside of the grocery store. Last time we saw each other <laughs> was at the old fairway on 125th street. And it was during the pandemic. All masked up and <laughs> in the, in the like survival mode shopping. <laughs> I was getting a whole like series of toilet paper. No, nah, I'm just joking. <laughs> anyway, yeah. thanks again. And we will definitely talk soon. Thank you for having me, man. It was really, really a pleasure, man. Always talking to you. Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton-Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening.